This is Dan. When the first crypto meetup took place in San Francisco in 2013, Dan got turned on to Bitcoin, and Dan held. When Mt. Gox blew up and tons of people lost money on the failed exchange, Dan held. When the Bitcoin bull run of 2017 got the world's attention and then crashed in 2018, Dan held. And now, as the director of growth marketing at Kraken, Dan has seen it all. And through it all, Dan held. Today, we're pleased to welcome Dan Held to the show to do more Held puns and discuss the past decade of Bitcoin and crypto. We might also be pouring out a little iced tea for y'all. Hmm. So hodl someone close to you as we heddle our way through episode number 579 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. And greetings, friends, poolside at the Travilla for episode number 579 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. I'm Joel Tom. I'm Travis Wright. And that was a rooster. Did you hear the rooster? Yeah, I heard the rooster. We have uh, the, the next two episodes. Uh, this one with Dan, we're recording the bookends. That's what we call the front and back of the show because we... You hear it? There it is. <laughs> He's saying, buy Bitcoin. Um, Hold it. We Hold it. record the interviews and then before the show goes to producer Aaron for editifying, we, um, we do the bookends, the front and the back of the show. So we're actually sitting... Outside your place in lovely Luquillo in Puerto Rico today, poolside. You guys can hear the uh, the ambient sound of the roosters and the waterfall that you have at your pool. Mm, the ambiance episode of the Bad Crypto Podcast. In fact, the next episode, which is going to be episode number 580, uh, we're going to answer your questions about why we moved to Puerto Rico, what the benefits have been financially and personally, emotionally for being here. Physically. And, yeah. Uh, it's good for my my spiritually skin, my suntan. It's been yeah, it's very good, for, good for that, and we're actually going to video that one um, because it's just it's a more intimate setting. But uh, but this time, um, this we've got an interview with Dan today. Yeah, I've been following Dan for quite a while, and we connected on LinkedIn and had a great chat, and and we just needed to find a great time to get him to schedule this episode and uh, we had a very candid pretty it's a, it's a long episode isn't it it's a long episode and it's about to be longer because before we get to that interview we have a special surprise for you guys if you don't subscribe to the nifty show where we talk about nfts all the time it's all we talk about are nfts and digital collectibles you may have missed that we just had a one hour interview with the one and only ice t that yes. guy that guy, yeah, you know, you, one of the one of the OG, earliest OG rappers, right? And he's a prolific actor. He's been in so many movies, and he's uh, the fourth longest. His character in SVU, uh, what Law and Order SVU Special Victims Unit, is the fourth longest running live action character in television history that's pretty amazing which is pretty crazy live action not comedy or anything else right. not, he's not homer simpson yeah he's not homer simpson Don't. that's different uh that's an animated one but yeah so i mean is not he they're, they're real he this this was a fun interview like oh my gosh him and, and tommy the animator have created some really great nfts on the niftify platform mm -hmm. io. And we are partnered with them, and they said, "Hey, we're doing something with Ice T," and we're like, "Oh, oh, oh, please, oh, can we can we interview Ice T? I like Ice T. I'm literally drinking Ice T right now." <laughs> and so uh, the episode is episode number one twenty nine of the Nifty Show, but uh, we're going to play you a short clip of that interview with Ice T right now, and then tell you where you can find the show. So let's go to the clip. <laughs> There are no real true experts. Everybody's trying to figure it out. And the thing of it is, is that the future is coming, like I say. And, you know, I didn't want Tommy to miss the tag. You know what I'm saying? Because he's got art and galleries. He's got all these different things. We're animating, the, you know. And I was like, this is a good opportunity. Let's get involved. And, you know, and all the naysayers, I understand that. But, you know, fuck what you're going through. We're trying to do something positive. Now I'm thirsty. 
not for iced tea, just for more iced tea. Yeah, well, like some lemonade. Some lemonade, yeah. So if you guys go to nifty.show forward slash 129, you can hear the entire interview with Ice-T and Tommy, the animator. These guys are fantastic. And, of course, the video version is embedded in the page if you want to see the Ice-T face to go yeah. with the words. Yeah, go check it out. And, uh, you know, if you don't subscribe to the Nifty Show, I would say do that. We're talking this, – this year we'll be talking more about, you know – ongoing nfts but more metaverse stuff web3 stuff talking to some of the players that have been doing some of the amazing things that are that are changing the way that we are all living in the digital world right living in a digital world and i am a metaverse girl (laughs) (laughs) so there you go nifty.show forward slash 129 is where to find that and now uh, speaking of long clips, you're going to enjoy every moment of this. Dan is a super smart and kind individual. You're going to love his insights. So let's get to our feature interview with Dan Hell. Love having the OGs here on the Bad Crypto Podcast. And today's guest is one of those OGs. He's been in crypto since 2013, and he's got a name that spawns a thousand puns, especially in the crypto and financial space. You might know him as Dan Held on Twitter, which coincidentally is his name. It's Dan Held. He's the director of growth marketing at Kraken. Welcome to Bad Crypto, good sir. Thanks for having me, guys. Go, go ahead and just hit us with all the puns that you hear. I want one of the best <laughs> ones. Well, you know, when I grew up, Held was kind of a, a weird last name to have. Um, you know, there wasn't really a lot of good puns you could come up with it. But when I got into Bitcoin, well, all of a sudden, my last name meant something. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, people, <laughs> people, uh, it's funny to see the Twitter replies because I get a, at least a dozen a day where people are like, oh, Dan Heddle. Heddle. Yeah. <laughs> That's like right. the most common one is Dan Heddled. Um, I, I, I thought this was not, not actually your last name. I thought we had a, a conversation about that. It's not actually your last name. You held because you held crypto. <laughs> it's my real last name. It's, it's a German last name. Um, okay. Actually, That's direct- a perfect crypto name for. It's, for yeah, there's, there's a actual, there's a, there's a terminology for this called nominative determinism. Okay. It's the idea that people, become what their name is that if you're a smith you become a blacksmith or if that you're a held <laughs> you huddle bitcoin so there's a little but bit what of if your last to... name is dick <laughs> then maybe, you'll become... <laughs> maybe you're just destined to be one I, yeah. Sure. And then, yeah and then joel's last name was calm he's been in communications and my last name is right and i'm pretty much right all the time it's amazing <laughs> Well, not just communications. I was a speech comm major, but I mean, then 1995, I start building websites and, you know, people are, you know, and then I'm speaking and people like comms your stage name, right? Because dot com. Nope. That's the real thing right there. So maybe you're right. What did you say that was called nominative? Determinism. Yeah. They actually found it with data, by the way, that this actually does occur, um, like for doctor names. It's kind of a funny, weird thing where there's a, there's a, Based on statistical probability, there's an overpopulation of folks with doctor-related names for the different like specialties that they're in. So nominative determinism, there is a little bit that goes on there that actually does influence us. But yes, I, I have held. And um, for me, it's it's a very fortuitous last name, but also one that you know that I very strongly believe in. I mean, it did hodl this whole time, and I always believed in Bitcoin. So you know, it's right on point. I know we were connected on LinkedIn. I was like, wait a second, Dan Held. It's like it almost. I was like, this is not. This is not his real last name. And then we had we had a joke, and so I was like, I thought. So I even told Joel. I was like, no, this is not his last name. He just held Dan Held. It's, he's telling the story of his crypto journey. So you know what? You've been doing a lot of stuff, man. When exactly? Maybe tell tell about your story, like when you first got into to crypto, because I know you were part of the original crypto meetup way back in the day in San Francisco with with the guys from Kraken and Coinbase and whatnot. But when when was that very first aha moment that you had with, with the Bitcoins? Yeah. So um, to give you, to zoom out, to like to zoom all the way back, I was in undergrad at Texas A&M when the 2008 financial crisis happened and I was studying finance. Well, in that moment, I realized that my professors were wrong. Everyone on TV was wrong and everyone that I trusted was wrong about how money should work, how the economy worked. 
And that led me down a libertarian path of more laissez-faire economics, of more um, you know, understanding that the Fed is the core root of these systemic sort of uh, dislodging of, of like the efficient allocation of capital. Um, and so more of like a gold bug stance. And then when I found Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, um, I actually registered my Mt. Gox account in 2011. And then I think 2012 is the bulk of my kind of like when I started to really get into the weeds of it and start to really buy it. Um, 2012 was when uh, a buddy introduced me to Bitcoin. And he basically told me, hey, like, you got to check this thing out. It's a digital currency that no one can control. And for me, the the sort of the pitch, the, the calling card was the Silk Road. Like the Silk Road was a testament to the resiliency of the platform. I didn't know anything about how Bitcoin worked. I had no idea how blockchains worked. I had no idea about public private key cryptography. I mean, I'm a I'm a preppy dude. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a cryptographer engineer. And at that time in 2012 is very engineering heavy. Almost everyone into Bitcoin in 2012, 2013 were engineers. And so for me, it just made sense where I'm like the kind of aha moment were two things. One, the 21 million hard cap. That to me was a, a breakthrough in monetary policy. And we could dive into that a little bit later. And then the second part was the Silk Road. The Silk Road was testament to the resiliency of the Bitcoin network. And to me, that that spoke volumes as to like, this is a powerful tool for a sound money to exist outside of the control of the government. So those are really the big things for me that got me down the rabbit hole. I uh, got relocated at the small investment firm that I worked at to San Francisco in January, 2013, started to go to the meetups. It was kind of like church, right? Like it's kind of like church for the hodlers, mm -hmm. you know? Very fortuitous to be going to San Francisco at that time, huh? Extremely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it, it sounds almost too good to be true in terms of like who that original mix was, but it's wild. I'm like the only non-billionaire in the group. So I guess I didn't do so well compared to everyone else. But um, it was really cool back then because everyone was building or tinkering on something like the Coinbase guys were building, uh, Kraken was building. Um, there's J Jared Kenna hosted the meetup at 20 Mission. He had Trade Hill, the first U.S. exchange. Not many people remember that because it's so long ago, but everyone was kind of tinkering back then. We all wanted to build Bitcoin up. And so that was like a really cool moment in the space, I think, was like it was very, very hobbyist, um, which was fun. And in that hobbyist sort of moment, uh, when in March 2020, uh, March 2013, when the price went from $10 to 260, that's when I decided to build my first product. So I built a mobile app called Zero Block. Zero Block was the most popular mobile app in crypto back in 2013. We got bought by blockchain.com and I was the first product manager at blockchain. Uh, fast forward from there, worked at a couple other crypto companies, worked at Uber, uh, Uber headquarters on writer growth uh, and growth marketing, and then left that, started a startup called Interchange. We got acquired by Kraken. I came on board Kraken and built out uh, kind of the, the basics of the marketing team here. Mm. So I don't want to know how much Bitcoin you have. What I want to know is when you sold your first Bitcoin, what was the price when you did not hold? Well, I think all of us early Bitcoiners, you know, no one's perfect, right? No one's a perfect hodler. So I would say like probably the first prices that I sold at were around like $10. Um, and the reason why is I was buying something with it, right? Like back in that era, people were like, oh, you should try to like, you should buy like alpaca socks with your Bitcoin just to see how it is. And so I did some of that with a lot of regret. <laughs> um, you know, that's to me, that's where, you know, later down the road during the hard fork uh, and the big block, you know, the block wars. To me, it, it seemed very intuitive that Bitcoin's more of a story value asset because I had so much regret spending my Bitcoin on a few trivial things like that. Or um, I remember going to like Room 77 in Berlin and buying a burger with Bitcoin, um, all those sort of things. So I've, those are the moments that I've sold and I, <laughs> I regret all of them. Um, those burgers, whatever else I was buying was not worth it. So yeah, it was a good burger. Yeah, but it's one of those things, man. It's like if there wasn't earlier early people selling and using Bitcoin, then Bitcoin would have never become a thing that people use, right? Or even as a store of value because nobody was using it. So it's like you, people like you had to use it back in the day to kind of get the momentum rolling, right? Well, that's a narrative that some people choose to take. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, and here's a good reason why. So Bitcoin's properties enable it to be immutable, right? So that Bitcoin's very useful when you want to buy things that you're not normally allowed to buy with your fiat money. That's why Silk Road was so popular. Well, 
you know, with Silk Road, when Silk Road collapsed right before the end of the 2013 run-up, you know, like the entire 2013 run-up happened after Silk Road collapsed when transactional volume dropped 90%. So Bitcoin going to the moon or the kind of the more hodl mindset where if you hodl, Bitcoin goes to the moon. As the price goes up, people become more aware of it. And by an expectation of that value increasing, people come for the speculative nature of Bitcoin, but stay for the sound money. That's what made the the space 10x in adoption. So I do think like, Silk Road, Silk Road in particular was testament to the resiliency of the protocol because you were buying illegal things. That's what makes Bitcoin valuables that you could, you could buy things that you can't normally do versus like a burger. I could easily use my credit card or cash. Um, so I don't think that buying things like in person like that really were any, had any value accrual to Bitcoin's realness. Um, I would say that the store value nature of it and the speculative cycles are by far what brought in the most people into Bitcoin rather than like paying for coffee. And, and by the way, like, you know, I worked at blockchain.com, which Roger had a, a huge share of <clears throat> Roger Ver. you know, I was with him when we go to different restaurants and stuff and pester the restaurant owners to take Bitcoin. Almost 0% ever like kept that up and almost 0% became like Bitcoiners because of that. Mm. Um, most people became Bitcoiners because they hodled and saw their uh, purchasing power increase, or they bought in expectation of the price going higher and then read about Bitcoin and really went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, pe- people always forget too that like back in the 2013 era, it was like Bitcoin talk. There wasn't even crypto Twitter back then. So it was Bitcoin talk, the, the Bitcoin forum is where everyone talked and uh, the Bitcoin subreddit, which were kind of weird places to learn about Bitcoin because it was super technical and there wasn't like great YouTube content yet. There wasn't like awesome articles or books that had been written. So learning about Bitcoin is actually quite difficult back in that era. You mentioned um, Silk Road, and of course, Ross, Ross Ulbrook, the um, the founder, um, is spending double life imprisonment plus 40 years without possibility of parole. I mean, talk about the punishment not fitting the crime. Just uh, curious, do you think that he will eventually be released and pardoned? Yes, but he's going to be an old man. Yeah, because like it'll be down the road and finally people will look back and go, well, this was disproportionate and all right, you're free and you're, you're 70. I mean, he is, uh, I just uh, Wikipedia, he's 37 now. Yeah. I think he'll be probably in his fifties or sixties by the time he gets out, but he will, he will get out. I okay. Think. I just um, want to say as a 57 year old, that is not old. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I refuse to be referred to as an old man. Get off my lawn, Dan Held. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's uh, he's going to have to wait a while. I think is, is kind of the key element here. Um, respect the hell out of him though. I think like, you know, he's truly a cypherpunk. He's truly kind of the core ethos of the space. And again, it was a testament to Bitcoin's resiliency. So got a lot of respect for him and um, certainly hopes he get. I hope he gets out sooner. Let's put it that way. Um, It's a long time to wait, but I do think that it's not very palatable right now with like kind of like American political values. I do think if drugs are legalized in the US, that that would probably be the first domino that needs to fall before he gets pardoned. Because when drugs become legalized, they're probably going to pardon a wide swath of people in prisons who are arrested on related drug charges. And then he would probably be one that would come a little bit later. I just want to say 10 points for using the word swath. It's one of my favorites. It's not used often enough. And so Dan held 10 points. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't used swath in a long time, but it felt felt appropriate. It felt good. Very nice. I want to ask this. So you... so. You know, reading your Twitter, reading your newsletter and, and uh, LinkedIn, you're talking mostly about Bitcoin. I know you got in Bitcoin really early. And, and so I'm curious, are you like a complete maximalist? Like, what are your thoughts on Ethereum and smart contracts and some of the stuff that could be done with some of these other chains that, that Bitcoin just doesn't have the technical capabilities yet? Yeah, so I'd, I'd call myself more of like a Bitcoin moderate. Uh, for me, like Bitcoin is particularly fascinating. I love Bitcoin's origin story. I love the problem that it's trying to solve. Like I'm a libertarian, former gold bug type, right? Like for me, Bitcoin is the holy grail of what I've been looking for. Now in Silicon Valley, you've got a lot of people who are more engineer mindset, like engineers who build apps, right? And so they're kind of looking at this as like a permissionless app platform rather than like a new sound money. So for them, other layer ones like Ethereum and other ones that have more program programmability are much more interesting. So 
for me, my personal f- feelings are like Bitcoin is the most interesting thing in the space, but you can certainly go explore the other stuff. I do think that there are novel incentivization mechanisms that are being created. I do think that there's a lot of like different learnings about how communities are built and that some people might refer to that as like Web3. So for me, I, I definitely think like there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, personally, I find Bitcoin the most interesting, but certainly excited that people are exploring other things. And, um, you know, definitely would, would see, you know, like to see, um, I, I don't think Bitcoin needs to change to compete. Bitcoin is really only competitive with itself because it's about credibility of the monetary policy and Bitcoin has the most credible monetary policy and the best community to enforce decentralization. But I do think it's going to be interesting to see how like Ethereum versus Solana play out in the more, you know, DAP platform, um, kind of decentralized uh, DeFi space. You know, when I first got into Bitcoin in 2017, Kraken was one of the first exchanges. In fact, I'm looking back at my trades. I just logged in um, and it looks like July 30th, 2017, I bought EOS. <laughs> That's it. 2017 was a good time to buy right right in the middle there because it peaked at the end. Yeah, and I and I think um, and I think I I hodled that EOS until um, last month. I finally ditched my EOS. I finally gave up on them. Finally said, you know what? This was the worst investment, actually. And now, if I would have sold it at the peak, it would have been you know what twelve dollars or so. But what do you think? I mean, let let's talk about EOS for a second. Did those guys just totally screw the pooch or what? You know, I think that. If you set up a foundation that has a huge amount of Bitcoin, I think the um, was it Block One has more Bitcoin than Michael Saylor's company. Is like that, that, is that um, fact? Which, I by the way, so. Saylor just bought more. I just saw on Twitter <laughs> that uh, MicroStrategy acquired more at an average price of forty nine thousand. I love it, man. <laughs> Saylor's the ultimate bull. Um, I think yeah. Was it is it, it Block One is the foundation for EOS, right? Um, it's extremely surprising to see them not really lean into their community and spend any of those of that that treasury money or or very little of that treasury money trying to improve the community. So, you know, look, when it comes to these market cycles, I've been through 13, 17, and now, you know, with these projects, you got to really pick like super legitimate projects where people are going to stick around for more than four to seven years. And so, you know, I don't want to point any fingers at any folks, but it definitely seems like there wasn't as much, um, you know, kind of like enthusiasm or like the community really there. So that I think that that represents why the price probably hasn't gone back up. The best thing to come out of EOS, as far as we're concerned, is Wax, right? Because Wax became the king of NFTs, and now you know we've minted over a million and a half NFTs on Wax, and there's a huge community. The Wax chain is is incredibly busy. Um, so thanks, uh, Block One and EOS for that. But um, boy, get a grip on your own coin. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to see these coins ebb and flow, by the way. I mean, I've been around a long, long time. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, I, you know, I, for example, the Ripple founders were in San Francisco too, right? Like, and I didn't, it, it was hard for me to fathom that people, you know, because Ripple, Ripple isn't exactly like, it doesn't have the same ethos as, as a lot of the right. other cryptocurrencies have. Um, but it's just kind of wild to see what became bigger and what didn't. And um you know, I mean, I remember when Ethereum was first created and all these sort of things. And it's weird to see how the, the price actually leads narrative. So the the price goes up and then the narrative is crafted around why the price went up. And then that creates a reflexive loop. Uh, whereas in the price keeps going higher, people keep championing the narrative as to why it's going higher. So it's been really fascinating from like a psychological perspective to see how humans react to prices and how that creates legitimacy in their mind of different projects or, or product market fit or traction, you know, people equate price to traction, right? So it's, it's, yeah, it's been fascinating watching these coins ebb and flow 13, 17 in this era. Yeah. 13, 17 and 21. Yeah. You've gone through three of these big cycles, right? And, and seeing that, you know, notice it's not 13, 14, and that's not 17, 18. It's not 21, 22. 
right? So it's like, are, is this bull run different? Is this bull run over? Like, where are we now in this cycle of, of uh, cryptos? That's a great question. Yeah, it, it's something that I think everyone's thinking about, especially right now, because a lot of people, including myself, felt like this might have been, you know, this in this sort of time, December, January, <clears throat> was when the peak of the bull run should hit. Um, I think that, you know, when we look at Bitcoin objectively and we look at kind of the, the macro world, you know, we had COVID, right? And governments went money printer go burr and people lost faith and trust in their governments. And so there's never been a better macro narrative for why Bitcoin. So I think that backdrop makes it very, very, me very, very bullish on Bitcoin's trajectory. Combine that with, an, you know, we got our typical four-year cycle and, at the, and, you know, right around now is probably, you know, getting... We would hope that it's still very bullish and getting closer to the peak. Um, I do think that we're seeing something about the, you know, we're seeing the cycles become elongated. So each cycle is playing out a little bit longer than the last one. If that holds true, then we should see more action happening in Q1 2022 that, that is bullish. Um, I subscribe to that theory. I also subscribe to a theory that this cycle is going to be different. And that's sort of like the super cycle theory. Um, super cycle theory has like kind of like a couple different outcomes. The TLDR is that this cycle is different. It would be crazy to, for Bitcoin to behave exactly like all the other cycles, given all the institutional money, given the macro backdrop, given the size of retail. So I very much doubt that 69,000 was the peak or is it 68,000? I forget exactly, but I would very much doubt that. that it was 69,420. I think it was the number. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, praise be to Elon who got it, yeah. got it to that, that, <clears throat> that exact price. So, you know, I think, yeah, I think the bull run is still going on. I think there's a lot of reasons to be bullish. And it would be very surprising to me if that was the peak. Yeah, I have to concur. I have felt and continue to feel the same way. I just, I look at, everything that's happening in the macro and go, there's just no way that this thing is going to drop 50% out of nowhere. And when it does, if it were to, it would get snapped up so quick and run back up so fast because of all the reasons that you've explained. And yeah, we're pushing into the next year, uh, but the people that I'm looking to and, and, you know, trust think that it could be February, March, we could extend into April or, you know, in the spring as this thing continues moving up. Adoption is never slowing. It's only moving forward. So what the only thing that'll drive it down is people reacting out of fear from an event. But those, you know, you know how the news cycle works, that event happens and then it passes 24 hours later. We're like, oh yeah, that was, that was a long time ago. What's, what's really interesting to see is that Bitcoin's price and every price of any asset in the world is the, is the total amount of all information being priced into the asset. And so some people might've heard this from school called efficient market hypothesis. Um, and by the way, I think efficient market hypothesis is more descriptive rather than prescriptive. It doesn't predict future price movement. It just describes the aggregate shared belief in the entire world and all the information in the world is being priced into what something's worth. Um, you know, with Bitcoin, what's really interesting to see is the FUD how FUD hits the price, right? So FUD is information, it's negative information or information that has a kind of a negative tone to it. FUD over time, you know, used to impact the price a lot more. And I think what we're seeing is a desensitization to FUD and how FUD impacts price of Bitcoin. So it's been, I think, particularly fascinating to see how, um, you know, like China FUD is sort of like, no one cares about China FUD anymore. You know, if or if like a government official says something negative about Bitcoin, it's like no one cares. So I think that Bitcoin's becoming more resilient to negative news over time. Um, same with like energy FUD, where people complain about Bitcoin's energy consumption. You know, all those sort of things I think are, you know, and a lot of these, you know, it's called FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, because a lot of these arguments are so absurd. Like they don't really have any rational basis. Um, they're not, you know, a lot of these arguments are like, whether about Bitcoin's fairness or energy consumption, most of them are, are somewhat immaterial. They're, they're just kind of silly. So yeah, I think, you know, with this FUD, Bitcoin is becoming more resilient over time and is becoming more and more resistant to it. And it's having less of a less impact on price. Mm. Now, 
you know, another thing that we're seeing that's, that's really kind of crazy is uh, some of these countries adopting Bitcoin, right? You know, El Salvador and some of the stuff that's that's going on with that. And it just seems like, you know, with more large corporations adopting and, and collecting like Michael Saylor and Michael Strategy over there. And then, you know, you know big companies and big, and big countries like, oh, El Salvador just bought another 140 Bitcoin. Like, oh, wow. Like, like. I, it's going to come to a point where there's not a lot of like free floating Bitcoin out on the market where people are willing to sell it. And it's going to be like, we're, we're getting close to that. It seems. Yeah. So people call this a, like a supply squeeze. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that, you know, people look at Bitcoin's adoption. They had retail traders or investors, then you've got uh, hedge funds and now you've got corporates. Well, what happens when we see, you know, sovereign wealth money come in or central bank money, you know, Bitcoin is very early in its adoption cycle. And so that's where I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, how much higher can it go? I think of a lot higher, much, much higher, like 10 or 100x from here, because there's so much capital in the world looking for an asset like this, looking for an asset that is seizureship resistant and censorship resistant. So it's hard to seize and it's hard to censor. And um, the monetary policy is a perfect one. So, you know, I think that in that environment, it's it'd be very surprising to me if if this is the peak of adoption in the world with like less than 1% of the world buying into it. Um, I think we've got a lot further to go. Are you a financial advisor? I'm not a financial advisor. Okay. So without a financial advisor hat on, what coins and projects are you personally looking at that you think have great promise and why? I'm a Bitcoin guy. So for me, I think Bitcoin is your best risk adjusted return. So can you make a lot more money buying an alt? Absolutely. There, there's tons of great projects out there and trying to pick which one is really, really tricky though. You know, will you pick an EOS or will you pick the next Solana? You know, that's, that's a pretty big question. But are, are you that's picking a, any? Are you, are you purely, are you in on Bitcoin? I'm purely in on Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin's what I care about the most. Um, you know, what I do find interesting and so I'll kind of call that out is like Solana. I think Solana is super interesting. I really like the trade-offs and the decisions that they've made. They've made the decision to increase throughput and increase speed uh, and sacrifice more decentralization. And I think that's a smart way to go because they're trying to compete on the smart contract platform uh, perspective. They're not trying to compete on being a sound money. And so I think that they've made some really wise trade-offs. And I think it's probably you know, I would say a very serious contender to Ethereum. And so if you consider it a serious contender to Ethereum, there's quite a bit of upside there. So if I were to be speculative and, and choose something outside of Bitcoin, I'd say Solana is probably your, your next best bet. That is interesting. I'm actually de deploying a uh, NFT project on that. And because Solana is supposed to have 400,000 transactions per second, it actually got really bogged down with this Soul Chicks project. And, and then they were doing some other stuff. And then like the network to deploy stuff on the network was almost to a complete halt. Uh, and oh, it wow. took, we were going to launch something on the 21st and it finally got live today on the 30th. So it took nine days to actually get something deployed on that. And that when you're in a time sensitive thing, and you're like trying to do things on certain days, like, <clears throat> but they've not written anything about like, Hey, here's what happened on this. I, 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 retro. I need a write-up. Give me a, give me a, yeah, give me a, a, a post-mortem of what happened on that. And I, we've not seen that. And so it was frustrating. I was like, why am I going to launch this on Solana? If there's this, if it can get bogged down, maybe I need to go on Polygon or some other L2 on, on top of Ethereum. So, you know, you're a Bitcoin guy. You love Bitcoin. We love the Bitcoins. Bitcoin cannot do certain things like smart contracts and stuff, but there is some DeFi type of things that could be done. So, I mean, like, what are the things, what are some of the things that, that you think are interesting that can be done to earn more? Like DeFi is big. Everybody loves it. And uh, Bitcoin, you can finally do some of that, but you still can't do smart contracts. So maybe where do you see Bitcoin evolving to? Yeah, you know, and we can start first with sort of definitions of what is DeFi and smart contracts. So I would say smart contracts are like scripts that allow you to move money in a scripted, like in a, a, a scripted or programmatic manner. And then DeFi is, I'd say, a bit more fluid. It's kind of tough to, to nail down what DeFi exactly means. But in general, people refer to DeFi as kind of decentralized finance, which what, the, what does that mean? That means I can build different apps that can refer to each other in a semi-permissionless manner. Um, so, you know, when we dig in on like what Bitcoin is capable of doing versus these other chains, 
So Bitcoin has limited scripting capability. Um, for, for example, multi-sig is actually technically a smart contract because it's it's a script. A script. So it's you know it's like a it allows you to do something in a I would say like a, a, a building block component to for example DAOs would be like multi-sigs. So um, you know I would say that Bitcoin has that component. Bitcoin has some other ones as well, but in general, Bitcoin is not widely used as a smart contract platform. To to kind of kind of reiterate what you're saying. Um, the reason why is the Bitcoin community believes that preserving its aspects of sound money being a good gold 2.0 is the primary objective and that adding uh, really sophisticated scripting languages or changes to the protocol would introduce new attack vectors and, and potentially diminish some of its value as a gold. And so I don't disagree with that sentiment, but I do think there are ways that this can be built on top of Bitcoin in a safe manner. And so a couple of those uh, one lightning, lightning. I would say is smart con- is a smart contract. Lightning is super popular in the Bitcoin network. That's a layer two tech, kind of the one of the most popular layer two techs in crypto. That allows people to transact Bitcoin in a very cheap and instant manner, um, and it reduces on chain congestion. So, <clears throat> lightning, I think, is a really cool real world use case that's happening all the time, and it works pretty seamlessly. You've also got some other things like um, you've got like coin joins. So join market is actually the first people don't realize like a lot of these things were actually built on Bitcoin a little bit. So like join market is a way for you to mix your Bitcoin and you can earn a yield on your Bitcoin if you allow your coins to be mixed with others. So in join market is, is, is decentralized. So that's one of the first like DeFi products. Uh, so that's pretty cool. You've also got like a lightning pool, which allows you to lend out your Bitcoin to different lightning channels and earn a yield on your Bitcoin in a permissionless fashion. Uh, you've also got Stacks. So Stacks is like another, it's like another layer one, but it's also somewhat co-integrated with Bitcoin. There's a lot of nuance to how it works and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but there are some capabilities where like, for example, Stacks can um, read the Bitcoin blockchain and have smart contracts function on top of that, which is really cool. So, um, you, you know, and then you've also got like RSK and Sovereign. RSK is a uh, quasi like I don't think sidechain is exactly the right word, but that's like a good way to refer to it. RSK and Sovereign are, you know, Sovereign is essentially, um, it's got a governance token. It's a it's a protocol. It's like a, a DEX, if you will, and that allows you to, you know, deposit assets into a liquidity pool and earn a, into yield farm. Um, so, you know, I would say those are like, those are, that's existing tech today. There's also uh, just um, discrete log contracts which allow for really complex sort of like um, different outcome or Oracle generated outcomes. So for example, we could bet on a football game and an Oracle could price us and uh, which could bring in data from the football game onto the Bitcoin blockchain. And we can use that data to inform the outcome of the bet. So there's a company called Atomic Finance that is currently working with um, discrete log contracts to allow you to do options trading in a permissionless manner on the Bitcoin protocol. So you know, I, I think that there's a lot of interesting smart contract and DeFi stuff going on on Bitcoin. It's certainly a fraction of what's going on in Solana or Ethereum, though. So definitely agree. I, I don't think people's first thought is that Bitcoin is a smart contract platform. Yeah. However, there are some interesting things you can do with it. And I think those are only going to get better. Right. So is that maybe Satoshi's vision? And with the uh, <laughs> I want to ask question. about that, you know, because that whole... You know, uh, you know, Dr. Wright uh, court case happened and like there was a bunch of stuff that, that happened on that. So you being the hodl guy over there, what do you, what is your thoughts on uh, Dr. Craig Wright and the whole uh, Bitcoin thing? <laughs> well, look, I mean, we created a perfect way to show ownership of an asset. It's called public private key cryptography and that underpins the entire crypto space. It has to do with NFTs and Bitcoin and Ethereum and every asset in the space is under the underpinning of that is public private key cryptography. If I have my private key, I distinctly have ownership of that asset. Well, if he was Satoshi, all he's got to do is sign with his private key on those coins he has. And, and instead we see an extremely convoluted process, super long process where he claims to he can't get the assets. He claims this or that. And um, it's sort of an Occam's razor. I have an Occam's razor perspective here of like the real Satoshi would just in two minutes, just sign it with his private key and the discussion would be over. It's not, 
there's there's no reason to make it any more complicated than that. Unless he's like Travis Wright and lost his private keys. It's hard for me to believe that Satoshi unintentionally lost his private keys. Now, did he? Could he have burned them? Certainly. I think that's a that's a possible scenario. Well, then Why offer that work? up. Say I I burned the yeah. keys. But that's not what Craig Wright, Craig Wright is is saying. He's got some convoluted answer as to the keys are held by someone else and I don't have access to them. And there's uh, I think Jamison Lop has a great post on uh, how many wrongs does it take to make a right where he goes and spends, I think he spent a, like a hundred plus hours compiling all of Craig Wright's claims and then debunking them. So if someone wants an in-depth piece, he must that, have extra time on his hands. Is, is that maybe he's living up to his name and he lopped? I don't know what that is. <laughs> he's got a lop of time. Really. Yeah, I mean, Jameson's a good guy in the space. He's uh, kind of your yeah. classic libertarian and Bitcoiner type. Yeah, I love him. We had him on real early on the early bank crypto days. He, he reminds me of the early days. I The early, early days of the space. I, I'm as preppy as I look. I'm more of a I'm more of a libertarian. I'm a libertarian Texan. You know, I've got a couple of assault rifles. I, uh, you know, I'm libertarian to where I believe in full legalization of all drugs. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm here for sound money and, and free money where it's not under the control of any government or any individual. So I demand my Advil, damn it. I want all my Advil. <laughs> <laughs> you should have saw Joel's face right there. Was very angsty. I want my Advil. Legalize. So I, where are things headed, not in crypto, in the U.S. economy, the world economy, is the shiz about to hit the fan in ways that we've not seen in, in decades or what? I think so. I'm, it's, I would be much more troubled if there wasn't Bitcoin right now. Um, and here, here's some good reasons why. We've got, if anyone's ever read the book 1984, which by the way, I name drops 1984 with a bunch of college kids, they still read it. I was happy. I was, I was surprised. I was excited because I think that book definitely highlights like what the world has become. In fact, way worse than what 1984 ever thought was possible. And in our world, we've got governments, the NSA, CIA, and these intelligence agencies parsing through all of our communications. We have politicians egregiously breaching ethical and moral boundaries and, and sort of gambling with the economy. Same with like these investment banks where they gambled with the world's economy and were bailed out. We've also got terrible monetary policy where money printer go burr. And then on top of all that, you've got rising socialism across the world. <clears throat> um, all of this combined is a, a paints a very dismal picture, I think, for liberty and capitalism. Capitalism, by the way, I think is a, is a bad word now. It's more of, I believe in free markets. Let people do what they want. Whenever governments step in and try to distort the market by fixing prices or printing money, they, they, they choose outcomes. They pick winners. They bail out their buddies. They, they distort the economy. And the free, free market is how we have everything here. That's how we have this camera I'm talking to you in and this computer and, and all the food that we eat. That wasn't You're such a food. rebel, Dan Held. And what do you mean <laughs> let people do what they want? Who do you think you are? Don't you know that you need... The, the politicians and bureaucrats telling you how you should live your life. Don't you care about other people? We should, just can, we should just cancel me right now. You know, just, just cancel me. It's uh, this show brought to you by B. <laughs> you know, I think in this world too, of like cancel canceling, like the need for an immutable money has never been greater where no one can censor you based on your political beliefs or religious beliefs or anything like that. So you know, I think that the time for Bitcoin and the time for this sort of technology is exactly right now. It's when we need it the most. And it's sort of serendipitous if you think about it. Like if it had happened sooner, I don't think Bitcoin would have been ready or the rest of the space. But it's happening, I think, just at the right time. And it's happening in a way that I think is is playing out very nicely to where um, the future, I think, would be very dismal without what we what we have with Bitcoin. So to see how the world has changed and to see how Bitcoin plays a part in solving that problem, I think makes me very, very optimistic. Um, but I do think there's choppy waters ahead. I don't think that it's necessarily going to be smooth sailing. A lot of things are going to come to a head, you know, so I think that um, I think it's going to be a choppy next 10 to 20 years. How bad, mm. though? How bad is it going to get? 
I think there's reasonable chances that the United States will be broken up into pieces. Um, I think that there's a reasonable chance that there might be like a nuclear weapon detonation. Um, I think there's a decent chance that there'll be kind of widespread um, overthrows of Western developed nations, um, like European nations. Um, so yeah, I think pretty, pretty bad. I would guess on a spectrum of like, those are considered pretty extreme events. I'm going to go get in my bunker here. In <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like so, one of those things. It's like either that, or we're going to get this, you know, global sort of authoritarian uh, panopticon powered by technocracy. Right. It's like, totally. that, that's where we're trending. Right. And it's like how, and so it's like crypto is the thing that can kind of help us avoid that. And when we see what China is doing to the Uyghur population in Western China, and how they built that, and then how no Western countries are, are going against China and calling them out. The Pope didn't even call out the Uyghur situation in his, in his speech. It's like they're being ignored. Why? Because it seems like that's the proving ground for what they want to sort of implement in other places. So in my mind, if that's the case, you know, toppling of some of these Western governments might not be the worst thing. Yeah, I think China is by far... I think China, the government's an extremely evil government. And I mean evil in that like an old primitive human way. Evil as in like completely unethical and antithetical to what what governance should be for human beings. Humans should be free. And I think China has entranced a lot of these Western developed nations with money. And I find that completely disgusting. Exactly. Like and a lot of corporations, I, like there, yeah. there's like 70 people sitting on the Pfizer top executives of that. They're Chinese CCP. Like, oh, there you go. You know, Travis like, with your conspiracy theories. Again. Data. I got the data. No, I can it's, back that one up. it's not conspiracy. I mean, LeBron James issued a public apology to China. I mean, what the fuck is that? That's like 1930s issue. That is issue. weak. That that is he shit. is their yeah. little bitch, and I and don't care. Right. What's what the kind NBA going to do? Fire LeBron James? Get the fuck out of here! They're not going to fire. Is, he is a little bitch. That's totally. all there is to it. He is their then, bitch. What makes it so disgusting is that the virtue signal about other issues like transgender issues, which are issues, and I think we need to solve those. But then, like, you've got fucking concentration camps, and they're like, "Oh, well, I don't know enough information about that to comment on it." I'm like, "Dude, what the hell?" Like, it's just very disingenuous. If you don't want to talk about any political topics ever, okay, sure, maybe you could skirt the topic and just be like, I just don't want to comment on any political topic. But if you if you chime in on a host of other topics, but then the one big one you're not going to say anything on is just a complete lack of moral and ethical character. Um, it's like in 1930s, 1940s being like, what do you think of Nazi Germany? And you're like, oh, I don't know enough to comment on the situation. <laughs> you know, it's like, have a fucking backbone. Um and so I think with like American corporations, it's been extremely disgusting. And by the way, I don't care how much China offers me to sell my soul to speak positively about them. I would never, ever sell my soul to go speak and be like, oh, I think that I think what they're doing is, is ethical. And I think what they're doing is moral. I would never, ever sell my soul to do that. And so, you know, it's, it's really disgusting to see like Hollywood very much lean into this. If you look at the funding of a lot of films now, a lot of them have like Tencent and other like Chinese, big Chinese corporations, which are quasi controlled by the government. When you look at that and you look at how that's changed dialogue in movies, it's insane. Like certain, certain scripts, certain like uh, comments are taken out of scripts. Now, um, if you notice, there's a lot of like Chinese characters that have played major roles in different Hollywood movies. Well, those are bought for roles because they want to introduce Chinese individuals uh, well, Chinese nationals into kind of the consciousness of like, these are also heroes too. Um, by the way, I think the Chinese people themselves are good people, right? Of course they like, are. Of They're course they are. Like to tyranny. Exactly. Exactly. So this is not a, a racial or, or cultural mm -hmm. thing. It's, it's a simply a governance thing. It's a Winnie you know? the Pooh thing. That's <laughs> what it is. It's exactly. A it's a few leading it all. And I mean, it, it, it really is, uh, a crazy scenario when you think about it, all the different influence that it has and the different things that's going on over there, how many people are bowing down to them. And it's really, it's like just a little bit of dollars, a little bit of money will, will sway. It's, it's so easy to sway people. And guess what? When you're printing money, it's so easy to come up with money. Yeah. And it's like, and so, so, you know, Bitcoin is it really has its place in the future as long as the electrical grid stays on.
right? I mean, I think that's <laughs> yeah. Well, I got a I got a funny quote with that one. So if we uh, if the electrical grid goes down, we're not going back to the gold standard. We're going back to the lead standard bullets. <laughs> as a libertarian i got plenty of so if we go back to that standard i'm going to be i'm going to be sitting pretty, pretty coming well. to your place in in texas uh you know it's not and it's not just china right if you talk to anybody who has escaped a communist nation and there's many here in america i don't care where they came from they look at what's happening here in the u.s right now and go you people are the biggest idiots you are you are on a level of not knowing history that makes you seem like a child. And, and that's why those of a certain political persuasion here in this country, I, I believe, have their heads so far up their asses that they're popping out their neck again. Uh, that's how that's how far up they are, because they just they do not see it all. And they don't know history. Totally. And, and we're seeing some of this people starting to vote with their feet, which I did. I left San Francisco after spending eight years there. Why did you step on a needle or in shit? <laughs> Both at the same time. Um, no, but but there are, there are people who still defend to the death the the politics of San Francisco so much that they will put the same outwardly blatantly corrupt people in leadership, and in fact they'll elevate them to the level of governorship. <laughs> It's it's yeah. absolute insanity to me. Well, one part of that is the people lifting them up versus the systems that uh, that people are voting on that are that are keeping those people in power. I mean, we've seen with Smartmatic and what happened in Venezuela, and then that whole thing has been proliferated all over the world. That type of technology, which and, and people go, "Oh my God, that's conspiracy!" But if you look at it. You know, there's this thing called the World Economic Forum, and there's this group called the Young Global Young, young Global Leaders. And if you're a young global leader who's gone through Klaus Schwab's sort of thing, then you get placed in leadership all throughout the world. You go and look at the alumni of the Young Global Leaders and see that alumni, and then see where they are today, and you go, "Wow, it's this almost conspiracy chemistry. brought to you by Sir Lord Travis Wright." There you go. It's chemistry. And then another thing about China is China has a 500-year roadmap. Their, their civilization is 5,000-plus years old, so that's a 500-year roadmap for them to dominate the world, and here's how they're going to do it by ethical means or unethical means. They want to get to their end goal. And so there's a whole lot of factors in play that like, we're, we're even unaware of. Yeah, and I think, I think this is why I started to write about Bitcoin. Like I've got a long experience building products in this space, but I didn't write or speak on Bitcoin in like a more public manner until 2018. Right. I felt like there were narratives out there that were very detrimental to Bitcoin success. And I believe that Bitcoin success leads to a better, more fair world, a world that's not controlled by China or the US or anyone else. And so for me, it was a moral imperative that it helped more people find Bitcoin and get into Bitcoin. And that's why I started to write. That's why I started to speak. Is that, you know, when when I'm sitting on my deathbed, I want to look back and be like, well, what the fuck was it all for? Well, Bitcoin is a pretty damn good cause to fight for. It's a pretty awesome cause, especially now. And so, yeah, we're all rebels. We're revolutionaries for this more free world. And I think Bitcoin is a good rallying cry for that. I think Bitcoin is the kind of more singular narrative that solves this big problem of control and wealth. And for me, yeah, what 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 more worthy cause is there to fight for? Wow, that is a... A conversation ending soundbite right there, Dan Held. Um, boy, we appreciate you coming on today. It's been a while. We've been trying to get you on. We finally, uh, finally made it. And uh, where can people discover more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, we'll definitely had a blast chatting with you guys. Like to go to, I loved going down the China rabbit hole. I don't think many, many podcasts we go down that path. Um, if you want to learn more, we just uh, lost our Chinese sponsorship. Damn it. <laughs> oh man. No more free Huawei phones. No more. <laughs> you, you we were, we were actually both uh, Huawei uh, KOLs and, and walked away from it. Like I yeah. don't want anything well, to do with them. We yeah. all just lost 20 social points from Winnie the Pooh. So well, if you want to feel more rebellious, you want to get into the Bitcoin, you want to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole um, on Twitter. I'm at Dan Held. I'm also on LinkedIn. I've got a YouTube channel. Um, if you want my more in-depth thoughts, so kind of like longer form, like a little bit more baked out thoughts versus like a tweet, I've got my newsletter called The Held Report. And uh, if you sign up for the free one, you get that once a month or the paid one is uh, four times a month.
Well, hopefully you guys held all the way through that interview and received uh, benefits for doing so. You might feel physically more robust now as a result of listening. I sold some during the middle of the interview. You soddled? Yeah, I, I sold some Bitcoin. It was like <laughs> the price was tanking. I was like, Bitcoin's dead. And I saw the uh, I saw the obituary, and I was like, this Dan Held guy, whatever. I'm selling right now, bitches. Like, I, I wanted to see just like if he would freak out. Like I'm selling it. I'm like, selling <laughs> right in real time. I soddled. I just sold some Bitcoin, Dan Held. What you gonna do about it? Nothing. Because you're just gonna held it. You're gonna heddle. Until yeah. the end of time. Uh, yeah, we'll have Dan back again at uh, some point in the future. He's very knowledgeable and um, and eloquent. Still holding with Dan held. Still holding after <laughs> all these years. Got some listener feedback from Uh-oh. Stephen oh, no. DeVecchi. These always scare me. No, this don't be don't be afraid of this okay. one. Um, hi, guys. Hope you're well. We are. My oh, name okay. is Stephen. I'm 31-year-old Italian living in Sydney. Good day, mate. Finally found a few minutes to send you an email. Well, glad. We're glad you found some time. I just want to thank you all for the podcast you guys are doing. I always listen to you while I am driving my car or running at the park. Since one and a half years ago, I never missed an episode. You guys are amazing. Always crack me up when you talk shit all the time, but also you're giving us nice advice and life lessons. Not financial advice, but winky winky. Great job, boys. See ya. Oh, that's that's nice. Thanks for that. That is good. We do like the feedback. It warms the cockles of our hearts, and we just like to say that word. We say it. Heart? I don't know how many times we've said cockles. But it's cockles. Good. You like yeah. to say cockles. Cockle, cockle, cockle. Cock- <laughs> I don't know what cockle is, but I know it has to do with the heart. I guess, I guess the heart has a heart on called a cockle. Yeah, <laughs> and it gets warm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's like microwaving your heart. That can't be good for you. Oh my God. I want to see an animated version of that, like a nice heart, you know, like the nice little, it could be like the real uh, anatomic heart or the, you know, the, the Valentine's Day heart with a heart on and it's his cockle. <laughs> Not to be confused with a cuckold. A cuckold and a cockle is totally, the, different. totally different things. Yeah. The cuckolds yeah. of my heart. Cuck- <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We are getting ready to record episode number 580 as soon as we're done with this. Um, So get ready for that to come out a little later this week. I believe Sunday night that'll come out and there will be video to accompany it so you can visualize Travis and myself sitting poolside at the Travilla sharing why we decided to uproot ourselves, our lives, and make the move to Puerto Rico. Rico. It's going to be great fun. I don't know what's going to happen because we haven't recorded it yet. Could to- it could totally be a train wreck. It can go off the rails. It could. It could. So, but it probably won't. Yeah. Uh, well, we hope maybe you'll learn something. And, it's going to uh, be a really short episode. So we picked up. We moved to Puerto Rico. <laughs> it's nice here. You stay back. You just ruined it. You just you ruined stay, it. Stay back. Oh, and that's how we end the show. Oh. Stay back. Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of bitcoins and and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor. Yeah, so um, great, great interview. And just kind of, you know, we're chatting here afterwards. And it's like, so what are the thoughts, you know, because, you know, there was a, there was a, a document created by the NSA in 1996 called Something of it, it wasn't the how to create a digital cash or whatever it was. I, I don't remember the exact title of it, but I'm sure you're familiar with that. What are your thoughts on you know maybe the NSA being part of Bitcoin creation to move forward cryptocurrencies as an acceptable means? Because once everyone has a cryptocurrencies or digital currencies, then paper money goes away and it's a lot more easy to control, especially with vaccine passes and whatnot. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so kind of my quick hit on that. One, I love the NSA conspiracy story of Bitcoin's origin. I think it's a fun one. Uh, you've got some of the best cryptographers in the world. Now, I think the, the what if that story is true, here's how the story would have played out. 
Cryptographers are hired to build a weapon, a financial weapon, a weapon to destabilize fiat currencies. And so that's why they built Bitcoin, is it could have been initially first built as a weapon that you could go deploy and destabilize fiat currencies that have a weaker monetary policy than your own. So I think that they could have been tasked with building that, then realize like, oh, maybe we should just go let this out loose in the world and then let it out loose outside of the lab. So it's a lab leak theory, NSA lab leak. Um with some rogue NSA scientists. So that's the kind of the more fun theory I have with that. I think that like, it would be really interesting from a game theoretic perspective if Satoshi stashes the US government stash. So the US government sends out Bitcoin to destabilize fiat. They see the end of fiat coming, these scientists do. Let Bitcoin into the wild, destabilizes the weaker fiat currencies, but the US dollar is backed by Satoshi stash. <laughs> you know, that would be a brilliant game theoretic move. And it's such a low percentage that people wouldn't balk too much at that. So what was it 5%? Well, hell, the um, FBI confiscates Bitcoin and then they sell it off at auctions that Tim Draper goes and buys. Like at lower prices. Like what? Like wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to hold it? Like it just makes I me know. If it was the FBI, Dan would help. I would, if I was the director of the FBI, I'd be like, we got to hodl this. We're going to hand it over to the treasury and we're going to, we're going to hodl this. But uh, yeah, I, I do like find the NSA lab leak one kind of a fun theory though. I, I don't know, guys, you know, I know a lot of people in the national speakers association and, and I don't think that they would have invented Bitcoin. I just, I don't, they, they talk well, but it just doesn't. They got a lot of words. Say, hey, Satoshi was a good speaker. You know, he can't, he can't throw it out. Aaron, let's just use that as the Easter egg post uh, disclaimer. I think that's a great little piece right there. 